Church, our scripture today will be out of the book of First Timothy as we continue this uh, study on the stewardship of life. First Timothy chapter 6, uh, verses 13 and following will be what I'll read. Paul writes the following, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He was the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let's pray. So, Lord, we thank you for your word that has been handed down to us, and we ask now that you would allow um, us to see the Scripture and that you, Holy Spirit, will make application to our lives. Open our eyes and show us wonder, truth, and glory from your Scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this discussion of the stewardship of life, the definition for a steward is uh, one appointed to give oversight to a provision who in turn will give or must give an account for what he's been given. Stewardship. Now, and in this study of 1 Timothy, we said that there's some polarities in the way people think. In 1 Timothy, Paul is writing and addressing false teachers, and we're not sure exactly what their teaching was, but we have different elements of that teaching. And Part of the teaching that Paul is combating is that these false teachers taught that if you really know and love God, then you'll be wealthy. At same today, we hear the health and wealth gospel propounded by certain people, and, and Paul says that's just wrong. It's erroneous. He, he talks about the, what makes up these false teachers. He says, for example, in 1 Timothy 6, he says that these people, these false teachers, verse 4, are puffed up with conceit. And they understand nothing. Secondly, they have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspensions and constant friction among people. So, so they, they, were, they were haughty and arrogant and, and prideful, unteachable, and they were pugilistic. They loved to argue about words and parse words. And he said, and then the result of that type of mindset, part of their teaching was... They teach, verse 4, um, or verse 5, imagining that godliness is a means of gain, financial gain. And Paul says, they're wrong. So, so in, in this whole issue, you've got 
one extreme are, are people who say, if you're sick or if you don't have money, it's because you don't trust God because God gives everything to his people. And we know that is not true, that God gives gifts as he deems fit. Uh, for this Kenneth Hagin, Joyce Meyer, some of those people, they're just way off base. And, and the, but the other extreme was popular for a while. It's not as popular as it used to be. For example, there's a man named Richard Foster, who's a, 90% of the time is good in what he says. He's a Quaker. He wrote a book on spiritual discipline that was good. 90% of it was good. Uh, then he wrote a book in 1985 entitled uh, Sex, Money, and Power. And in that book, he made the following comment that is just totally wrong biblically. This is what he says. Money is not neutral, but a power that is demonic in character, close quote. You can't get that from the Bible. And in fact, the, the Bible is very clear that, that, that money is, let me read verses 9 and 10 right here. 1 Timothy 6. Th those who desire to be rich, that's their ultimate desire. They just want to get money, money, money. Those who desire to get rich, and that's their God, um, fall into temptation, into a snare, and into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some people, Paul says, have, have wandered from the faith and they have impaled themselves with many sorrows. They, they've pierced themselves with many sorrows. So, so money is a root. The Bible says very clearly, be very careful in the way you use your money, that, that you cannot serve God and money, Jesus says, absolutely. You can't serve God in power. You can't serve God in self-centeredness. So you just tease that out. And then you come to this passage we're going to look at this morning, verse 17 and 18. He says, and I'm going to quote it from the New International Version. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or, or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but, but command them to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share with, with those around them. He doesn't say command them to divest themselves of their money. Command them to divest themselves of what they have. So just command them to have a, a mindset of a steward. Command them to be generous and willing to share. Command them not to put their hope in, in, this, in money, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us for all our enjoyment. So, so really, my thesis is that as stewards, we are to enjoy the good gifts of God responsibly. It's very simple. There's a man named Leland Rankin who was an expert on the Puritans. He taught at Wheaton for decades. And he wrote a book about the Puritans, well, several books. But one is called Worldly Saints. And this is what he says about the Puritans. The Puritan century was 1560 to 1660. That's when they were there, heydays, so a long time ago. He says this. The Puritans believe that these earthly things are good gifts of God, which no man can simply condemn without injury to God's disposing hand. And in other words, if you look down upon the good gifts of God, you begrudge his character and his providence. He says, his disposing hand and providence who has ordained them for our natural life and our use. And so the situation is here is be careful how you use your money. Because I believe this. I believe Satan understands us 
and understands everyone has a price tag. Everyone has a price tag, whether it's money or power or fame or, or athleticism or academic proficiency, something that can become an ultimate idol in our lives. And God must be supreme. I think about the temptation of the Lord in Matthew chapter 4. Christ had been fasting 40 days and 40 nights. The devil comes to him, and, and, and the devil says, if you're the son of God, command this stone become bread. I mean, that's, that's, he, point, he, he appeals to ultimate, immediate gratification. Immediate gratification. It says, command stone to become bread. And Christ says, no, because it is written, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay, next temptation. Takes him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle. He says, jump. If you're the son of God, God will protect you. He'll bear you up. Because the Bible says that his angels watch over us, basically. And, and Jesus says, no, the Bible says, do not put the Lord thy God to the test. And so appeal to his pride. And then the third temptation was a desperation ploy by the, by the devil. He had all the kingdoms of the world pass before the eyes of Christ, and in his perverted thinking, the devil says, if you worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And Jesus says, be gone, Satan. See? Get out of my face. Because the Bible says you're to worship the living God in him only. So, so up to that point, Christ quoted scripture, but when, when he tried to usurp the authority of God, he said, be gone. See, he got in his grill. Get out of here. And so the, the devil knows we have an ultimate price tag. And for some of us, many of us, it's, it's, it's possessions, it is money. And so Paul says, command those who are rich in this present world, don't be arrogant. Don't make money your goal or your God. And, and to put your ultimate hope in money because it's just uncertain. Because it has nothing to do with your ultimate life in and of itself. But, but, but put your hope in the God who is and who has spoken. So, so I just say, be careful. And see, the stewardship of life is an, is an invitation to life and, and joy and peace. I, I love to point this out, and I've done it several times, but chapter 1, verse 10, Paul talks about the bad behavior, and then he says in verse 10, chapter 1, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, which means life-giving, beautiful, harmonious teaching, sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. This sound doctrine says this is life-giving truth. Then he says in chapter 4, he says that, that, that bodily discipline has some value, but godliness holds promise for today and for every day to come. Every day and all the days to come. He says bodily discipline is good, but it's limited. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 3, uses that word sound again. He says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit. Sound doctrine. Do you hear that, church? Life-giving doctrine. Beautiful doctrine. Harmonious teachings. And then in chapter 1, verse 4, he says that don't devote 
Tell them not to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He says, tell them, don't, don't be speculative and say, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if. Stay here. Be a person of faith and diligence. And so it is an invitation to life and peace and, 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 and hope. So, so let me give you some points, and then we will uh, just look at this passage. Okay, point number one. If I'm to live responsibly as a steward of the good gifts of God, I must do so from the basis of worship. See, that's why when you study a book, it's always good to study a book in context. I mean, the Word of God is wonderful, but if you can study through books and say, well, what's the argument? What are they saying? You can see in context the argument and the unfolding plan and what the Lord is saying through the pen of his apostles and prophets. For example, here in 1 Timothy 6, to understand verse 17, command those who are rich in this present age. You have to see the context. The context, Paul is talking about false teaching, talking about how false teaching seduces, and then he says, you, you, you have Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Flee these things, pursue these things, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then he says this, he says that to keep this commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And, and as he thinks about the reality of the triune God and what he's done and, and about the glory of heaven, he breaks out into this spontaneous doxological worship. He says, this is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He's just overwhelmed with the character and the greatness and the grandeur of God, the God who is unchanging, who is always eternal, who's always triune, the one whom no man has seen or can see, but one day we will see face to face because we'll be in glory with him. Then he says, man, to him be eternal dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I read that and I say to myself, self, if I'm to live responsibly as a steward, then, then, then I, I've got to be a person who, who lives out of the context of worship. And I ask myself, am I, in a growing fashion, uh, mesmerized is the word, transfixed, overwhelmed with the character of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? I, I need to plead, God, open my eyes to be absolutely stunned into silence by the majesty of all that you are. Oh, I want to know you. And so out of that, out of that worship, Paul says, man, command those. Just charge them who are rich in this present world. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in riches. It's just uncertain. But put your hope in the living God who graciously gives us all things to enjoy. That's your Abba Father. That is your Savior. That is your Comforter. He does the same thing in chapter 1. In chapter 1, he's talking about the mercy of God. He says, but, verse 16, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, 
the foremost of sinners. I was persecuted in the church and cursed in the name of Jesus and gave hearty approval to the first martyr, Stephen. He says, the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life too, the king of ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Once again, he's just bowled over when he, when he thinks about the mercy of God that set him free and, and delivered him from sin and gave him the hope of heaven. He says, oh, I, I am amazed at the grace of Christ. I, I've, got to, I've got to live that way. So there's this quote by Francis Schaeffer regarding being thankful. And Schaeffer, the apologist who died in the 1980s, volume 2, he says this, of his works, when I lack proper contentment, I have forgotten that God is God. A quiet disposition and a heart giving thanks is the real test of the extent to which we love and trust God at the moment. Is, am I giving thanks? I, so, so when it comes to worship, uh, the, the fuel for the furnace is the Word of God. The furnace is my heart. The heat are my affections. But the fire that causes it all to start is when the Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and opens my eyes to see the grandeur of God. I need that. See, to live as a steward with joy and abandonment, enjoying the good things of God, with my eyes fixed upon the hope of heaven, I've got to have an understanding of the character of God and the glory of the cross. And, and I just ask myself, I ask you, am I living there? Are you living there? Do you understand that? Number two, and to be a good steward, I must understand that the pursuit of God and my joy are simultaneous events. The pursuit of God, the glorification of God, and my joy are simultaneous events. Whenever I read the Bible, I'm going, Jesus asked us to renounce lesser things to receive more of him. To renounce this to receive more of me. Hebrews 11:6. without faith it is impossible to please God, for everyone who comes to the living God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So I've got to believe that anything I renounce is to have more of him. I was meditating on Psalm 63 this week, just about passion and worship, and the psalmist says this, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Beholding you in your sanctuary, I have seen your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Now that's the cry of a man who says, I've seen you, I want more of you. I've seen your power and your glory. Your steadfast love is better than life. But, Lord, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you like a pilgrim in a dry and weary land where there's no oasis. I've got to have that attitude. Oh, God, I want to know you. I want more of you.
please. Thirdly, the stewardship of life helps to guard against pride and deceit. Once again, he says, command them not to put their hope in riches which are so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides. Uh, so uncertain. Uh, so let me give you two, two sides of stewardship. Uh, one side of stewardship is uh, you, you develop your gifts. You develop your gifts. The, the other side of stewardship, here's, here's the divide. The other side of stewardship is, in life, is understanding um, you've been given gifts and you've been at the right place at the right time. I'll explain. So, so one side, you doggedly develop the gifts that God has given you by daily faithfulness. There was a study released in uh, 1993 by a psychologist named Anders Erickson regarding an exhaustive study taken at the Music Academy of West Berlin. Now, I'm going to give you this as an example. I'm not a musician. I'm not the child of a musician. I'm not the father of musicians. I don't even know many musicians, but this is just the illustration. Okay. So his, his, his statement was he observed violinist, and he said, he said, he wrote this, Many characteristics once believed to reflect innate talent are actually the result of intense practice extended for a minimum of 10 years. Now, if you've ever played an instrument, you know, well, yeah, you, you play, and you play, and you play, and you play. Uh, specifically, he found that rigorous practice of at least 10,000 hours enabled the musicians to overcome any innate differences. And then you, some of you have read this book, Outliers, by Malcolm Gladwell. He took up that theme and he developed it in a popularized form and had a bestseller. He's a wonderful writer. But Malcolm Gladwell came up with what he called the 10,000-hour rule based upon this study. And, and he spoke, not of violinists in his book, but of, of ice hockey players. Now, for those of us in the South, ice hockey players, they're, they, they're, it's in the North, ice rink, skates, long stick, no teeth. Ice hockey players, Okay. So he said, ice hockey players, he said, um, he wrote, that, that without 10,000 hours of practice under his belt, there is no way he can ever master the skills necessary to play at the top level. And he talked about ice hockey player after ice hockey player. And in another book, he talked about their date of birth, but that's another story. Um, then there's a book been released recently entitled The Sports Gene by a man by, by the last name of Epstein, who who studied distance runners in Nepal and the Rift Valley of Kenya and distance runners in Jamaica and cross-country skiers in the Scandinavian countries. And his, he, 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 he says this. He says, well, he said, yes, but if you don't have the genetic makeup, it's not going to happen. And he says the 10,000 rule is an overstatement. Well, I want to say it's both end. Both end. That we, we've been given gifts, but we've got to develop those gifts. A few examples. Innate giftedness and being in the right place at the right time. This guy. His name's LeBron James. LeBron James is arguably, some would say unarguably, the greatest basketball player in the world today. Now, LeBron is 6'9", and he's built like a linebacker. He has an incredible physique. Now, he's worked hard. He's a hard worker. He plays hard. I admire the way he plays ball. 
But if LeBron had been born and grew to 6'1", he would not be playing for the Cleveland Cavaliers today. It's a component of your innate giftedness and your dogged determination. And be in the right place at the right time. I was in Sudan several years ago with some people from this church. We were doing work with the church there and some health clinic work and southern Sudan is a stone age culture. It is basically no running water to speak of. At that point, one out of six to seven women died in childbirth. Um, they lived literally in grass huts. Wonderful people. The people group we worked with were the Dinka people. And because of their nutritional background, which they, they have what they call the month of hunger. There's a month when the crop fertilization or harvesting does not overlap, and so they, they call it a month of hunger. They eat very little during that whole month. And so the people are, are very slender. They have no body fat except for one guy. I was in this village with a friend from this church who's a sports fanatic, and I called him and said, I want to make sure I get this right. He said, oh, yeah, you're, you're understating it, if anything. So, so we turned around, and there was a guy standing there who was at least 6'10". I mean, he just was mammoth. And instead of being slender, he had a broad frame. I mean, he had shoulders like, like LeBron. And as we walked away, we both said to each other, imagine what could have happened in his life if he had been born in the U.S. and had a chance to develop that incredible gifted physique he has and, and play ball. So, right place at right time, in a giftedness, this man, Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Eisenhower was the commander of the Allied forces in Europe. If it had not been for a madman named Hitler who plunged Europe into war, Eisenhower would have died a esteemed, well thought of, probably colonel in the U.S. Army. But, but because of war and, and because of his innate giftness as a strategic thinker, as a self-effacing, gracious man, born in Texas, but really, he's really a Kansan. So if you ever have it on Jeopardy, his dad and mom, he was the third of seven boys. And they were very poor. They moved from Kansas to Texas to try to find a job. Eisenhower was born, couldn't find a job, moved back to, back to Kansas. So Texas has claimed him. Texans do that, you know. If you drive through their state and wave at them and you do something good, you're, you're a Texan. So be, be careful with Texans. Anyway, but Eisenhower. So he's a self-effacing, strategic thinker, made hard decisions, and he had the unique ability to work with a bunch of egos and to make them into a team. And he had all these generals from all these countries with all these egos, many of them, and he was able to go into a room and, and bring them together under one banner. And because of that, he was the supreme allied commander. The rest is history. I was thinking about this, and I was reading the Wall Street Journal yesterday. I love the Wall Street Journal, especially the weekend edition. And they had a book review about, about Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee. A man wrote a dual biography. His name is William Davis. This is his uh, 24th book on the Civil War. He's been the recipient three times of the Jefferson Davis Award for Excellence in Literature Regarding Civil War Historical Writing. But he talked about these two men be in the right place at the right time. As you know, Ulysses S. Grant, who went on to become president when the war started, was a failed businessman living really from day to day with no money and was rumored to be a man given to strong drink. And he volunteered 
for the army. He had some minor victories and he had some major victories. And he went from an unknown guy, basically with nothing, to the toast of the North in less than nine months. It's an amazing story. Robert E. Lee, many of you know his story, came from a family of aristocratic bearing, uh, was highly decorated in the Mexican-American War, but he was spending his last years in the military in the West doing duty that was just boring. The war started. He was offered the command of the Northern Armies, turned it down because his commitment was to his, his, his state, Virginia. And so he became really a, an administrator. And when Johnson was hurt, they put him in charge of the Army of Northern Virginia, and people in the press wrote things like this. He's nothing more than a red-tape bureaucrat. They called him Granny Lee because he was too old. They said he's an old stick in the mud and will never be a good general on the field. Boy, were they wrong. In the last statement of this book review said this, the events of their generation created them. Did you hear that? The events of their generation created them and call it coincidence or destiny, each proved to be the ideal man in the right place at the perfect moment, close quote. See, it's... It's, it's innate giftedness and being the right place at the right time. So I, I take away and I say, you know, God has gifted us and placed us here. We should go for it. My circles of influence. Innate giftedness, right place at the right time. Seize the moment. We don't sit back and say, oh, well, maybe. No, we, we seize the moment. We, we, we live with a sense of urgency and destiny because God is God and he's called us unto himself. And, and so we, we, we seize the moment. Or this man, Eric Lytle. 1924 Olympics. The Flying Scotsman. Academy Award winning movie, Chariots of Fire, about his life. Wonderful, great movie. Story is Eric Lytle came from a strong Scott Presbyterian background, was on his way to being a man who takes the gospel to the ends of the earth. He's fast. He goes to the 1924 Olympics. His event is the 100 meters. He's the hands-down favorite, but they run on Sunday. And his conviction was, I can't participate in sports on Sunday. And so he asked, can I please run the 400 meters? They let him, and he wins the gold medal. One of the great stories in Olympic history. In the movie, he says this. He says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. And Lytle went up, ended up being a missionary in China and was seized in the Second World War and put in a POW camp in China. And he ministered to people all the time, and he died of exposure and disease. But if I would written the script of the movie, I would have changed a word here. And it's, it says the same thing. But I believe God made me f for a purpose, and he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's his life. See, he says, God made me for a purpose, and part of my giftedness is I can run. I can run. And when I run, when I live, when I preach, when I love, when I embrace, I feel his pleasure. So, so you live with a sense of, 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 of destiny. And then fourthly, our confidence and our hope must be in the living God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Our confidence is in this God who richly provides us. Now, Martin Luther made this comment. It's, uh, he said this. 
This is Luther. Died in uh, 1540, something like that. Anyway, he said, if silver and gold are things evil in themselves, then those who keep away from them deserve to be praised. But if they are good creatures of God, which we can use both for the needs of our neighbor and for the glory of God, is not a person silly, yes, even unthankful to God, if he refrains from them as if they were evil. And I think Luther's been reading 1 Timothy. He says, if, if, if these really are good gifts from God, then aren't we silly? If not unthankful to God for not using them for his glory. What does 1 Timothy 6.18 say? That, that these wealthy people are to do good. To do something beautiful. <laughs> to be rich in good deeds. <clears throat> to be generous and to be willing to share. Conversely, Paul says in Philippians 3, he talks about a group of people who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He said their God is their belly. Their glory is in their shame. Their eyes are only on earthly things. Says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. So, so he says, command these people who are, who are going to heaven who know Christ. Command them to, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. And there's a quote in the bulletin. I mean, there's a wonderful book by a guy named Randy Alcorn. It's a great book on, on money. But he says a couple of things. Let me just read him. He says, once, once we allow money to have lordship over our lives, it becomes money with a capital M, a God that jealously dethrones everything else. Money makes a terrible master, yet it makes a good servant to those who have the right master, and that is God. You can take, put popularity in there, power, sex, academics, social standing, whatever. God must be supreme. He says, to regard money as evil and therefore useless for purposes of righteousness is foolish. To regard it as good and therefore overlook its potential for spiritual disaster is equally foolish. Use it, Jesus said, but don't serve it. God uses our wealth to extend his kingdom. We gave $451,000 to the Lottie Moon World Christmas offering. That's a hallelujah. That sends a lot of people out to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So, so you, you, always, you, you come to things like this and you go, well, you know, how, how can we be good, be rich in good works, be generous and willing to share, you know, be a good neighbor, Love your community. Love where you live. Love the people around you. So how, how are we generous and ready to share? Here's what, I'm going to tell you what I believe. And I want you to really think about this. I believe tithing is biblical. I mean, the, the older people here were raised in an atmosphere where you, give ten, you gave 10%. I've, I've had numerous elderly people say to me, man, we, we were tithed. I tithed from the first when I was married, and God has blessed us incredibly with his presence and his power. And, and yet, we live in this age of, of people getting into debt and getting 
tied in knots about how much is enough to retire on and do this and do that. And so, and so we, we, we don't soberly think about, the Bible says give God the first fruits of what you get, not the leftovers. And when you give God the first fruits, the Bible says he'll honor your life. He'll, he'll, he'll guard you. I, I believe that. And, and really, church, if, if we as church got a vision for tithing and bringing the money into the church, into the storehouse, I think what, what, what we could accomplish as far as sending and encouraging and blessing and building. And that's not to elevate one above the other. It's just if we're just faithful. And so I, I believe in tithing 10%. Uh, I believe that it's a, a biblical norm. I, I don't believe it's ever turned over in the New Testament. Some of you say, well, okay. The New Testament calls it sacrificial giving. So if you want the blessing and the empowerment of God in your life, be a faithful steward. Um, Alcorn says later in his book, tithing gives perspective. It reminds us that we are, we are and all that we have is from God. Tithing is not a tip thrown mindlessly down on a table after a meal, but a meaningful expression of dependence upon God and gratitude to Him. Tithing requires calculation. Stop. you got to think about it. you got to think about a budget. you got to plan creatively. You can't be seduced by debt card vendors. You've got, you got to think about it. You, you have to sit down. Sometimes you sit down. I've done this with people and say, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm giving. Where do I cut out? What do I do? You sit down with one of our elders who's walked through this and, and lives this. And they can just say, well, here, think about this. It's going to be totally confidential. But, but, but there's some people here that are so in debt that you can't see out. You can't see out of the hole. And, and God wants to bless you and use you to extend his kingdom. Some of us make Bad decisions and have made bad decisions. But tithing requires, requires calculation. When we deal specifically with the amounts God has provided, we assess God's goodness to us. We literally count our blessings, thanking him for his generosity. Tithing was and can still, and can still be a built-in reminder at every juncture of life of our unlimited debt to God. So, so when you bring your first fruits and you tithe, and you know, you See, the thing, the thing about giving to the local church, I think, it's, I think it's biblical, good, pragmatically smart. We have people on our missions committee, on our church, that look at all these mission agencies and say, well, they're doing right. Their confessional statement is good. They're going for it. We're going to give to them. And you give, of all the money we gave to Lonnie Moon, 98% goes to the field. There's little overhead. I mean, just little overhead. A lot of these places you give to, you'd be amazed at how much stays in the office. I was talking to a man recently and said, my son was inspired by this book. And I said, well, I hate to tell you this, but it came out last year. That whole book was a lie. He said, you're kidding me. I said, no, it was a lie. It was just, it was prefabrication to raise money. And it was a very popular book. We, we, we guard. People say, well, how about our budget? You know, well, are we audited every year? Every year. So I, be good stewards. Be good stewards. Biggest tours to, to the God who, who richly provides you for, with everything for your enjoyment. Honor the Lord with your substance, Proverbs says, and with the first fruits of your produce. And if you do that, your vats will be overflowing with wine, your barns will be filled with plenty. Proverbs 3, 9, and 10. I mean, just as a general statement. 
So, anyway, stewardship. God is good, and we thank you for his wonderful gifts. Let's pray. So, so Lord, today we are thankful, thankful, thankful that we do not bow our heads before a God who is parsimonious and who gives uh, gifts begrudgingly. We thank you as we've sung about creation today that we're going to walk outside in a beautiful Charleston afternoon and, 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 and see blues and greens and feel the breeze because you're a creative, glorious, good, merciful God, and you give good gifts to your children, and creation is one of them. Um, we thank you that you called us to be stewards, Lord, and, and help us to live with a sense of urgency and high calling. Help us to live with a sense of radical pressing into knowing you and loving you. So blessed be your name today, Lord. And I just pray you make application in our lives. Lord, help us to be good stewards of your incredible giftedness you've poured into our lives. And it's astounding to think about what you've done for us. The chief gift, of course, being our salvation in a right relationship with you through the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.